0: This hearing, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We're here today to consider nominations for three important positions. Ambassador Bridget Brink to be the ambassador to Ukraine, Ambassador Elizabeth Richard to be coordinator for counterterrorism, and Ambassador Alexander Laskeris to be the ambassador to Chad. I understand that Senator Peters will be introducing Ambassador Brink, and we have a vote going on the floor, so we want to accommodate Senator Peters, so we'll recognize you at this point.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Chairman Menendez and uh, Ranking Member Risch. It's certainly, it's my honor uh, to introduce Ambassador Bridget Brink uh, to the committee. I also want to recognize Ambassador Brink's family uh, who are with her here today, her husband, Nick, who is also serving our country as a diplomat, and to her two sons, Jack and Cole. Uh, Like our service members and their families, uh, our diplomats uh, do not serve alone, as every member of this committee knows, Their families often go unrecognized as our diplomats perform their crucial work in foreign lands thousands of miles from their country, so we want to thank all of them for their service. Ambassador Brink was born and raised in East Grand Rapids and graduated from East Grand Rapids High School in Michigan. Growing up, she remembers driving by a sign that proudly recognized her hometown as the home of President Gerald Ford. President Ford's decency, uh, integrity, and humility served as a marker for the the Midwest values that Ambassador Brink lives by. And Ambassador Brink still keeps Michigan very close to her heart, visiting family in West Michigan every year. Although she's lived all across the globe uh, through her career, uh, she will tell you that her favorite place uh, in the entire world uh, to visit is uh, back along the shoreline of Lake Michigan, and that makes sense. Uh, as I've always said, uh, the Great Lakes are are more than a than a national treasure to uh, Michiganders. They are actually it's they're ingrained in our DNA, and clearly the Great Lakes uh, are Ambassador uh, Brink's uh, DNA as well. Now, Ambassador Brink will have the opportunity to uphold those uh, Michigan values at a time of incredible upheaval in Ukraine, and I know Ambassador Brink is ready for the challenge. She's a seasoned diplomat who first joined the State Department in 1996 and has spent her career in places like Georgia, Serbia, Slovakia, Uzbekistan, places where she learned the intricate dynamics that underpin much of the post-Soviet order in Eastern Europe and Central Asia, and where she learned early on how Russian Russia chooses to treat its neighbors. Ambassador Brink will be in charge not just with supporting our Ukrainian partners in the immediate fight against the Russian invasion, but also in the recovery and rebuilding phases after. As someone who was working in the US embassies during the conflict in the Balkans and in Tbilisi after the Rose Revolution, Ambassador Brink knows what it takes. Her leadership is more vital than ever and her service across five administrations is fitting tribute to the apolitical service to country that we expect from our civil servants. I am proud to recognize Ambassador Brink for her extraordinary professional achievements and to congratulate her on this opportunity to serve her country. Her success will be our country's success, and I can't think of anyone more equipped for this position, and that's why I would encourage her swift confirmation and thank you for this opportunity to introduce an uh, absolutely extraordinary woman.
0: Well, thank you, Senator Peters, for a glowing introduction. We appreciate your insights. And I know that there is a vote on the floor, so feel free to, uh, to leave when, when you choose to do so. so uh, more than two months into Russia's horrific war against Ukraine, it seems clear that the battle for the future of Ukraine is far from over. While Ukraine has impressed the world with its bravery, A bloody fight continues as we sit here today. Just yesterday, missiles hit as a top European diplomat met with the Ukrainian prime minister. Missiles have struck in Lviv, where U.S. diplomats commute from Poland. The Russian military has destroyed towns and cities, and people are suffering. But the Ukrainian people continue to fight and defend their country. At the same time, American and European diplomats are working diligently to reopen diplomatic posts, while ensuring the safety and security of our personnel. And so, Ambassador Brink, thank you for accepting this critical posting. You will be more than a wartime ambassador. Your appointment, and I hope expedient confirmation, along with the return of American diplomats, sends a powerful message to the world. We stand with Ukraine, and the free world will not abandon those fighting to protect it. Once confirmed, you'll face multiple complex diplomatic challenges, navigating relations with NATO and our partners in Europe, helping refugees find food and shelter, maintaining Russian sanctions while meeting Europe's energy needs, documenting Russian war crimes, and supporting policies and institutions to be ready for reconstruction efforts. So with all this in mind, I'm pleased that the administration has identified the right person for such a difficult job. And I am pleased that we are considering a diplomat with extensive experience who as ambassador to Slovakia, has worked with a large Ukrainian refugee community and ensured the transfer of critical air defense systems to Ukraine, someone with experience tackling the security challenges of Eastern and Central Europe, who served in Belgrade during the Balkan Wars, and was a student in Europe when the Berlin Wall fell. Having said all of that, Ambassador Brink, we're going to look forward to hearing your thoughts on how you plan to tackle the challenges that await and about your priorities for the first few months. It's a difficult challenge, uh, and I think you'll be up to it, and we wish you well in your mission. We're also hearing today from the nominee for the coordinator for the State's Department Counterterrorism Bureau, Ambassador Elizabeth Richard. The coordinator is responsible for harmonizing the actions of U.S. government counterterrorism agencies to support partnering arrangements with state, non-state, and multilateral entities. Ambassador Richard has a long and impressive record of service as our ambassador to Lebanon, deputy chief of mission in Yemen, deputy assistant secretary for Near East Asia Affairs, just to name a few, in her uh, 36 years of dedicated service to United States foreign policy. So I look forward to hearing from you about what new initiatives and directions you'll take the Counterterrorism Bureau upon your confirmation. Finally, we are considering Ambassador Alex Lascaris for Chad, a country which for decades was run by strongman Idris Deby. It is one of three countries in the Sahel that has recently experienced a coup, further undermining stability in an already fragile region. But there is now a chance, however slight, for Chad to undergo a transformation. Ambassador Lascaris, I'll be interested in hearing now uh, from you uh, what you will do to support efforts for Chad's transition to democracy. In addition, I look forward to hearing from you your plans for improving U.S. policy uh, balance between defense, diplomacy, and development, something called for in legislation that I led in the Senate with Ranking Member Risch the Trans-Sahara Counterterrorism Partnership Program Act of 2021. And with that, and welcome to your respective families, uh, because as Senator Peters said in his introduction of Ambassador Brink, uh, this is a commitment by families and sacrifice by them as well, and we appreciate their willingness to sacrifice as well on behalf of the nation. Let me turn to Senator Risch for his opening statement.
2: Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to all three of you and your families for your willingness to serve. Uh, It is a sacrifice. We know that, and the American people appreciate it. In this time of war and turmoil, the U.S. has not had a confirmed ambassador on the ground uh, in Ukraine for nearly three years. Uh, I wish it could have been sooner and uh, we'd be further along, but it is what it is, and I'm glad we were able to uh, quickly bring Ambassador Brink before us for a hearing today. Uh, Ambassador Brink, if you are confirmed, this job will not be an easy one. I, come, I think that comes as no surprise to you. You'll be responsible for moving the embassy back into our facilities in Kiev, helping to shepherd U.S. military, financial, and humanitarian aid in the right places, and the war. And when the war is over, and it will be, assisting Ukraine in rebuilding its country. There will be a lot of scrutiny uh, from Washington on all of this, assuming you're confirmed, and I assume you will be. I uh, would urge that you take a proactive role in pressing Ukraine to remain true to its reform path and not allow the fog of war that's happened to derail that. I expect you to be a strong advocate uh, for whatever military assistance Ukraine needs in order to win. And we all have an expectation that you will remain in close contact with this committee. We need it. The advice of people on the ground is vital to shaping decisions in Washington, and we need to hear from you as we continue to support Ukraine in its fight against the Russian invasion. Uh, Turning to Ambassador Richard and their nomination for counter-terrorism coordinator, uh, while we shattered the Islamic State's grip on Iraq and Syria, problems remained. Uh, Just this morning, the chairman and I were uh, uh, briefed in depth on uh, the thousands of foreign terrorists that are languishing, sometimes in makeshift prisons in Syria. This is a really serious problem. It's an unreported problem, but it's an enormous problem. Uh, While a handful of our partners have uh, repatriated their foreign fighters to face justice, others have not. I welcome your thoughts on uh, on the resolution of this very significant problem that ensuring uh, ensuring that these fighters don't pose a threat to U.S. interests. Finally, I'm happy to see, uh, regarding Chad, I'm happy to see an ambassador with a range of experiences working in uh, Africa as the nominee for ambassador has. Uh, your uh, record is, uh, is, is outstanding, really. You've got a difficult road ahead of you, of course. U.S. relations with Chad are complicated by our security partnership, uh, notably to counter the terrorist threats in the Sahel and Lake Chad Basin and Chad's notoriously undemocratic undemocratic domestic politics. This is made more challenging by the coup that occurred following the bat- battlefield death of the authoritarian president, uh, Idris uh, Devi in April of 2021. The dissolution of, of Parliament and other institutions and the installation of his son as head of the Transitional Military Council all cause serious uh, issues. It's a critical time for the U.S. relationship with Tad, and it's equally, with Chad, and it is equally critical we have a confirmed uh, U.S. ambassador on the ground. Uh, I look forward to hearing what you have to say in regards to the challenges you face with that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you, Mr. Senator Risch. uh, We'll start off with you, Ambassador Brink. We'd ask you each to summarize your statements in about five minutes or so so we could have um, an opportunity to have a conversation with you. Your full statements will all be included in the record without objection. And Ambassador Brink, your record last.
3: Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of the committee for this opportunity to appear before you today. I'm honored to be President Biden's nominee for the position of ambassador to Ukraine. I'm grateful for the trust and confidence the President and the Secretary have placed in me. If confirmed, I commit to work with you to advance U.S. interests in Ukraine. I'm a career Foreign Service Officer with 25 years of experience. My career focus has been supporting the freedom and independence of the countries of Europe and Greater Europe. I view this work, to which I have dedicated my professional life, as fundamental to our own security. Our collective effort has created more stable and capable allies and partners, opened markets to U.S. goods, and advanced strategic priorities which protect and defend the people of the United States. I am deeply proud to have advanced the longstanding strategic goal of a Europe whole, free, and at peace over five U.S. administrations. I appreciate the leadership of this committee and our work to resolve conflicts in the Balkans, push back against Russian aggression in Eastern Europe and the Caucasus, and support reforms in young democracies on the edge of Europe. I know America is its most powerful overseas when we have bipartisan support at home with regard to our core national interests. I appreciate this bipartisan support as we face the biggest threat to peace and security in Europe in decades. If confirmed, I pledge to work with you to continue our commitment to a sovereign, democratic, and independent Ukraine, free to choose its own future. To paraphrase the President, in this battle between democracy and autocracy, between freedom and repression, between a rules-based order and one governed by brute force, freedom must prevail. Ukraine must prevail. If confirmed, my number one priority would be to advance the United States' strategic interests, which includes a democratic, sovereign, independent, and prosperous Ukraine. The courage and heroism of President Zelensky and the people of Ukraine has inspired us all. If confirmed, I pledge to work with Congress to help Ukraine succeed on the battlefield and at the negotiating table. We will ensure that Russia's effort to dominate Ukraine is a strategic failure. I also commit to working with you to continue to provide humanitarian assistance, economic assistance and to pursue accountability for war crimes in Ukraine. In supporting Ukraine, we are defending the principles of sovereignty and independence and the international rules-based order. My second priority would be to help Ukraine rebuild. We support the decision of the people of Ukraine to integrate more closely with Europe and to undertake the serious and difficult internal reforms needed to achieve that goal. It will require Ukraine to seize this historic opportunity with the eyes of the world upon it. A democratic, sovereign, and independent Ukraine is also in the interests of the United States. Finally, I take as my most solemn responsibility the safety and security of the people of our embassy. While we will not be able to conduct diplomacy in a war zone without risk, I pledge to work with my leadership and our team to balance risk against our goals in a way that advances U.S. national interests in Ukraine. Coming from Grand Rapids, Michigan, I entered public service with the values I learned from my family and community. I want to relay how proud I am to be a part of our career foreign service, underscore the vital role it plays in promoting U.S. interests and values, and pay tribute to the people and their families who sacrificed so much to serve our great country. I want to salute the current charge d'affaires, Christina Kvin, for her exceptional service and the team of dedicated Americans and Ukrainians who make up the U.S. Embassy in Kyiv. If confirmed, it will be an honor of a lifetime to join this team and lead our collective effort there. I want to conclude by recognizing those who have made it possible for me to be here today. First, I want to thank my husband and fellow Foreign Service Officer, Nicholas Higgins, who is here today, for his love and support for over 29 years. We are so proud of our children, also here, Jack and Cole. As part of a diplomatic family that has moved every few years for their entire lives, I want to thank them for their own service to our country. I would also like to thank my mother, Gwen Brink, father and stepmother John and Judy Brink, sister Joanna Brink, nephews. Andrew and Andre Brink, aunt and uncle Mary and Patrick Sane, my in-laws, Adrianne and Kingsley Foster, and all of my brothers and sisters-in-law for being bedrocks of support every step of the way. Mr. Chairman, ranking member, and members of this committee, thank you again for the opportunity to appear before you today. I welcome your questions.
0: Thank you very much. Ambassador
4: Richard. Thank you, Chairman Menendez and Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of the committee. It is an honor to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be the Coordinator for Counterterrorism at the State Department. I'm deeply grateful to the President and the Secretary for their support and confidence. Over the course of my 36 years as a Foreign Service Officer, I have had the privilege of serving in some of our most challenging posts, including Lebanon, Yemen, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. During that time, I have taken part in robust efforts by the U.S. and our partners and allies to confront the challenges to our security from terrorist groups in these regions and beyond. We've prevented another terrorist attack on the homeland and greatly weakened ISIS and al-Qaeda, though both groups continue to try to expand their geographic reach, creating new challenges. Terrorist groups threatening the United States and our partners today are more geographically diverse, more ideologically diverse, and more technologically adept than ever before. We must remain vigilant in addressing this complex and dynamic terrorist landscape. Iran, the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism and its proxies, continue their destabilizing behavior in the Middle East and beyond. I have seen firsthand the results of Iran's malign influence and I fully understand the need to keep the pressure on. If confirmed, I will continue to work with our partners to do just that. Terrorist groups in Africa exploiting poor governance and economic despair are growing more destructive by the day. Groups like Boko Haram, al-Shabaab, and increasingly ISIS thrive in this environment, and they threaten our interests in the region. If confirmed, I will work to increase international attention to these areas. There is also a rising danger from racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists which FBI Director Ray elevated in 2020 to a threat on par with ISIS and Al Qaeda. In addition to the increasing organizational decentralization of these groups, challenges to detecting and disrupting terrorist attacks include the exploitation of social media to radicalize and recruit, the use of commercially available encrypted communications, the deployment of commercially available drones, and the employment of sophisticated financial schemes. The State Department plays an integral role in the overall U.S. government counterterrorism effort by fostering international consensus as well as by helping build the capacity of partners and allies. U.S. counterterrorism efforts are shifting from a U.S.-led, partner-enabled approach that relies heavily on military power to one in which our partners have to have the will and capability to lead in addressing threats on their own soil. If confirmed, I will prioritize efforts to reduce the continuing threat that ISIS poses around the world. Under U.S. leadership, the 84-member Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS has made major strides against the group in Iraq and Syria. It is now also focused on addressing ISIS threats in Africa and emanating from Afghanistan. As part of that effort, I would prioritize the following. Repatriating foreign terrorist fighters and their families from Syria to their countries of origin strengthening the detention facilities in which they are now housed, and improving conditions in displaced persons camps in Syria to prevent them from becoming incubators for the next generation of ISIS fighters. While countering terrorism is vital to US national security, there are many other priorities and finite resources. While it is critical that the United States maintains its leadership role in international counterterrorism efforts, our partners should also shoulder a greater share of the burden Finally, I commit to working with you to ensure that the Congress is regularly informed and consulted on all our counterterrorism efforts. With that, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, I really appreciate your your consideration today and I thank you for the opportunity to appear before you and look forward to your questions.
0: Well, thank you. A career Foreign Service officer doesn't use all five minutes, that's extraordinary. Uh, Ambassador Lascaris.
5: Thank you, Mr. Chairman ranking member, it is a deep honor to appear before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for the second time in my career. I am deeply grateful to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for their support, and if confirmed, for the opportunity to continue my 31-year career in the Foreign Service in the Republic of Chad. To an Africanist, the word Chad conjures up memories of great kingdoms rooted in storied civilizations going back more than a thousand years in recorded history. Today's Chad is a rich mosaic of peoples, cultures, languages, and religions encompassing the worlds of the desert, the savanna, and the forest in an area three times the size of California. A rich past notwithstanding, however, today's Chad is also one of the poorest countries in the world, ranking 187th out of 189 countries in the UN's Human Development Index. It has some of the highest rates of maternal and infant mortality in the world and some of the lowest incomes, life expectancies, and literacy rates. It is within both our interests as a nation and our values as a people that we work to address these conditions. There are security issues that require our attention, but they should never divert us from the fundamental development challenges that call for greater action and which I believe define our work in Chad and will define my work in Chad if confirmed. We have been partners with Chad since its earliest days as an independent republic, and we helped defend its national sovereignty and territorial integrity against armed Libyan irredentism in the 1980s. Perhaps this memory of an attempt by Colonel Gaddafi to forcibly seize the northern third of its territory contributed to Chad's strong and welcome denunciation of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Two battalions of Chadian peacekeepers have long served in the UN mission in Mali, and Chadian soldiers have joined the regional and international coalitions against violent extremist organizations in the Sahel and the Lake Chad basin. U.S. military personnel have always been welcomed in Chad, and today some 75 American service members deploy to N'Djamena where they support the multinational joint task force in the Lake Chad basin and support our French and African partners in the greater Sahel. Chad and its people have also been superb hosts to refugees from Sudan, the Central African Republic, and Cameroon. The people have welcomed their brothers and sisters fleeing violence, and the government has ensured that humanitarian assistance from the international community, led by the United States, has reached its intended beneficiaries. Mr. Chairman, Chad gained its independence in 1960 and has had six presidents in the last 62 years. None of the incumbents left power voluntarily, and none of the successors uh, assumed power via constitutional processes. In its modern history, Chad has been governed by and for narrow regional and ethno-linguistic interests. It has also been governed more by the force of arms than by the force of law. Following the death of President Idris Deby in April of 2021, and under Chad's constitution, the president of the National Assembly should have assumed the powers of the presidency on an interim basis and led the country quickly to new elections. But he refused, and that did not happen. Instead of the process laid out in the Constitution, Chad has a transitional military council led by one of the late president's sons. It has pledged a national dialogue leading to new elections. After the death of President Debbie, the United States called for a peaceful, timely, and civilian-led transition of power to a democratically elected government. The pre-dialogue negotiations underway in Qatar are a critical step. If confirmed, I will continue to work with the African Union and our international partners and and Chadians of goodwill to support an inclusive, peaceful, and timely transition to a democratic and civilian-led government. The goal and the hope that we share with the people of Chad is the first democratic transfer of power in the country's history, one that empowers a new government to tackle the profound development challenges it will face on Inauguration Day. Unique in Chad's history, Transitional Military Council President Mohamed Debi has said publicly that he has no intention of running in the ensuing elections, the timing of which depends on uh, a successful national dialogue. Effective elections alone will not guarantee the success of the transition, but is an important signal to the people of Chad and to Chad's international partners that political power must be be contested at the ballot box and not on the battlefield. As I begin to formulate my own thinking on how I will advance U.S. interests in Chad, if confirmed. I go back to my two wonderful years in the faculty of the National War College, where we teach our students to formulate strategy by defining their ends, ways, and means. Our end state in Chad must be a stable country at peace with itself, and able to contribute to peace building in the region. Our ways consist of our portfolio of assistance and engagement programs, and those of our interagency and international partners. Our means are the hard work under challenging conditions of our small embassy, and the generosity of the American people acting through their elected executive and legislative branches. Thank you again, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member, and I'm happy to answer any questions either now or for the record. All right,
0: thank you as well. Uh, We'll start a round of questions. Let me start with questions on behalf of the committee as a whole. Uh, And these really uh, go to the nature of what we expect on responsiveness by officials in the executive branch and that we expect and will be seeking from you, a simple yes or no would be responsive to the question. Uh, do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited?
3: Yes. Yes. Yes.
0: Uh, do you commit to keeping the committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your portfolio? Yes.
3: Yes. Yes.
0: Uh, do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact?
4: Yes. Yes. Yes.
0: And lastly, do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated
6: staff? Yes.
4: Yes. Yes.
0: Okay. The record will know that all of the nominees responded yes to all of the questions posed. So the chair will recognize himself to start off with. Uh, over the weekend, Chargé d'Affaires Christina Kiev uh, took a small team to our embassy in Kiev. Uh, can you give us a sense, Ambassador, of how you envision uh, upon confirmation uh, bringing back our diplomatic presence uh, in Ukraine?
3: Yes, Senator, thank you for the question. I think it's a really important one. I was delighted myself to see Sharje Kvin uh, in, in Kyiv on Sunday. I think it's really important for us to be there in person and present. She's there now, and I know she is laying the groundwork to return our embassy operations in, in coordination also with Congress and the steps that need to be taken. We'll have to look at the security situation. Um, But I have great confidence in our security experts, including those on the ground, to give us advice that allows us to continue to advance our strategic interests, which means being present uh, to work with the Ukrainians, work with other embassies, um, and also coordinate uh, back with Washington from Kyiv. I don't know exactly how fast we will be able to do this process, uh, but I know we are trying uh, to do it as fast as possible. And it is certainly my hope and plan, if confirmed, to be able to start my mission in Kyiv.
0: And would it be fair to say that, however physical form it might take, that your goal is to have robust engagement with the Ukrainian government?
3: Yes, absolutely.
0: Uh, Now, along with the overwhelming majority of my colleagues who are working hard to support the administration's latest request for more assistance to Ukraine, It's absolutely critical that we work with our partners to provide Ukraine the military assistance it needs to defend against brazen Russian aggression, while also ensuring delivery of critical humanitarian relief for Ukrainians, their neighbors, who have welcomed refugees with open arms and address the global implications for food security uh, and energy security. So uh, let me ask you, uh, will you commit to the committee that upon your confirmation you will work with the Ukrainian government uh, to ultimately ensure that we have the information and accelerate the delivery of lethal assistance for Ukraine?
3: Yes, absolutely.
0: And uh, can uh, you also work with us? We, we are very much expeditiously doing everything we can uh, to promote this assistance to Ukraine, but we are talking about billions uh, of dollars. So um, how they are going... Uh, making sure they are truly needed where they are going, how they're being used. In this regard, uh, can I get your commitment to frequently consult uh, with me and our uh, committee staff on our oversight efforts with respect to security assistance, with respect uh, to humanitarian mm-hmm. uh, assistance uh, as we move forward?
3: Yes, Senator, absolutely.
0: And then... Uh, I know that we are in the midst of a war, but I also think thinking about the future, uh, hopefully the not-too-distant future, about reconstruction Mm -hmm. uh, in Ukraine helps light the way uh, uh, so that there is a light at the end of a very long, uh, harrowing uh, period of time. Uh, Do you see part of your role is thinking about working with the Ukrainians about what reconstruction and rebuilding looks like?
3: Yes, absolutely.
0: Okay. So we look forward to working with you on uh, all of uh, those elements. Let me uh, turn uh, to um, Ambassador Richard. Uh, You know, uh, Senator Risch alluded to it. We heard from the King of Jordan today in a meeting we had with him about these ISIS fighter camps uh, in Syria, 70,000, 75,000 strong. Sounds like it's a great breeding ground. Uh, for the next generation of ISIS fighters. What's your thinking about how we deal with that challenge?
4: Yes, sir, I, I agree. It's a serious, serious problem, and it's fundamentally unsustainable. And we saw this with the attack in Hasakah just a couple of months ago. So we have worked up till now, as far as I understand, with partners and allies trying to get countries to take these, some of these people back. I think it's it's clearly not enough, and we need to redouble our efforts and really insist. Because keeping him here in this limbo is a total incubator for more terrorism. Uh, also, on the issue of the of the humanitarian camps where families are, the conditions are horrific, and also potentially a breeding ground for more terrorism.
0: You know, let me ask you: uh, You know, the the twenty first century challenges of where the battles are, including in the context of terrorism, uh, are in one dimension, cybersecurity. Uh, what do you see as the current and prospective role of the Bureau with respect to addressing international uh, cybersecurity terrorism?
4: I think you're absolutely right that that one of the big challenges for us on especially on terrorism in the future is this information domain. It's cyber, it's, it's uh, c- encrypted communications, and it's social media. So I'm very very happy to see that the State Department has created finally a Bureau to deal with cyber issues and information. And I hope that CT, if I were to be confirmed, would be part of a very robust interagency coordination on these issues, because every agency in the government really is focusing on this now.
2: All right. Senator Risch. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Ambassador Brink, uh, have you spoken with the charge uh, since they've been back in Kyiv?
3: I haven't spoken, but I have communicated with her.
2: Uh, what, uh, what did she tell you about the status of our infrastructure
3: there? So I only saw one message that she had sent back, which just said it was uh, jarring how close uh, the Russians came to Kiev.
2: Suggestion was that uh, our, our infrastructure is sufficient to, to reopen. Is that, is that what you're gathering out of this?
3: I didn't, I didn't see details on that, and I wouldn't necessarily at this point be involved in that. But uh, I did see a couple pictures which showed there was some damage to the outside of our embassy building. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, significant damage or uh, superficial or what? I couldn't
3: tell. It looked superficial, but uh, I, didn't, I don't have information on more than that.
2: Um, do you, we, we tried to print the Secretary of State down the other day when he was here. Do you have any expectation of a time frame when you think
3: you might be able to get back? Sir, I can say, if confirmed, as soon as possible.
2: That's what we got out of the Secretary of State, too. <laughs> Not very helpful. Uh, I, I get that, though. Uh, the security uh, uh, issue's got to be resolved and, uh, and, and at least deeply assessed before that happens. I get that. Well, uh, how, do you, how would you compare the challenges that you're going to face there to the other postings that you've had? You've had considerable experience in this regard. Uh, how would you compare this, uh, if you're able to?
3: Um, sir, if I just might say on your last question, I know that the team that's there on the ground right now is actively doing everything possible to return embassy operations as soon as possible. So I expect that they'll be able to do that very soon.
2: And I'm, I'm told uh, there's there's other countries that are up and operating there already. I'm told is that is that correct? Is that your understanding? I
3: understand that too. Um, and
2: we sure don't want to be last of the party. So. Uh... We need to move along as best we can. Back to the question I asked, how uh, how would you uh, assess the challenges you're gonna face here to some of the other postings that you've had? You've certainly had a lot of experience in this area.
3: Sir, I would assess the challenge to be enormous. But I would also assess that, um, from what I have seen, one of the most remarkable things about this effort is the presidents, the secretaries and others bringing together this remarkable coalition to push back against Russia's uh, war of choice in a way I don't think I've ever seen in my 25 years in the service. So I feel that we have the commitment and the motivation and the drive, and with your support and with your funding and congressional support, um, and the support of almost all of the world, I think we can face this very enormous challenge, but I do not underestimate how much challenge the ambassador on the ground will have, Um, but I also believe I have an excellent team of people working across the entire administration who are fully committed to succeeding in in our goal, which is to help Ukraine defend itself.
2: Thank you. Ambassador Richard, uh, I share the same concerns (laughs) <laughs> that the chairman has regarding uh, what we heard today about these uh, thousands of people that are in prison camps uh, i i don't know how y- you're going to address that i one of the one of the suggestions was of course getting them repatriated i'm not sure that that resolves the problem i mean uh, simply being repatriated to where they came from uh doesn't seem to me it uh, sounds like you just get letting them out of prison and uh what what are your thoughts on that
4: Well, thank you, sir. Um, Repatriation for me is a shorthand for repatriation, reintegration, if possible, or incarceration. What I think some of the countries of origin don't want to deal with is that exact problem. The best outcome, if we have evidence that people are fighters, is for a legal process that keeps them in jail. And, And that's going to be difficult to do. But it's what we have to press for because the current situation is unsustainable, and just sending them somewhere and letting them go is also not a solution.
2: No question about that. It's it's certainly an unreported problem. There aren't people talking about this, so I have no doubt you'll resolve it once you get uh, confirmed. Thanks, yes, sir, you. Um, Ambassador Lascaris. Uh, the uh, The military council promised an eighteen month uh election after they uh, took power and 12 of those 18 months are already gone what's your assessment as to whether they make the 18-month deadline to to hold an election
5: thank you thank you sir as i mentioned in my statement there have been pre-dialogue negotiations going on in qatar it looks like that's going to slip uh to the right i think one of the key determinations i'll have to make if confirmed when i arrive at post is is the quality of process such that a delay uh, is understandable if not if not acceptable. If if the if it's not, then I think we have to um, to work with our partners to to push the process back into the right direction. Uh, but to answer your question, I think in eighteen months probably will slip. Yeah, I,
2: I I can't see how where the twelve months have gone by with little progress. It seems to me that there's no question that it's going to slip. I'd hope you'll and I know you will urge them to move this along as rapidly as possible because as we know, the people in power are just going to drag their feet, uh, hoping to be able to stay in power. So. Uh, good luck at that, and uh, thank all of you again for your service. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
7: Thank you. Senator Murphy? Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, uh, let me reiterate the chairman's thanks to you and your families for your willingness to serve um, some of the most important posts um, that currently exist in the Foreign Service. Um, Ambassador Brink, I wanted to draw upon your um, experience working in Slovakia. Slovakia is uh, presently one of the countries that is raising some of the most vocal objections to the EU's uh, plans to wean itself off of Russian oil. And you know the reason is pretty evident. This is a country that is almost wholly dependent on Russian energy. Um, I, I want to make sure that as a committee, you know, we see the full picture of how you defend Ukraine. Um, it, it, certainly at the top of the list is sending the weapons they need to fight this fight and win it. But in order to keep uh, Europe united, in order to press against the revenue sources that Russia uses to perpetuate this war, um, we have to be in the business of helping countries like Slovakia become energy independent. Um, And so I wondered if you just might share with us a few of your thoughts, given your broad experience in a country that has remained dependent, um, as to the focus we should have um, not just on the war in Ukraine, but also in this project to try to dry up Russia's revenue source in Europe.
3: Thank you so much, Senator Murphy. I, I'm so proud to be uh, the president's representative in Slovakia at this time, a country of five million people on the front lines right now of Russia's war of choice uh, in Ukraine, and. You are correct that there is debate, an active debate within the government of Slovakia about how to become less dependent on Russia, but I would say, and and what I know is that the political leadership has decided across the board in government uh, that Slovakia must become less dependent on Russia, and it it's a question of how to do it in the way that causes the least pain to the population. So Slovakia is nearly 100 percent dependent on Russia for all of its energy, for nuclear, for oil, and for gas, so it's a big challenge. We are, there are U.S. companies trying to help Slovakia reduce this burden, and we ourselves have been raising this for quite a long time. Uh, you, Senator Shaheen, and others I know have, have long um, expressed interest in trying to do this. I, myself, as a policy priority, and it, it is now that we have this opportunity. So supporting countries like Slovakia, I think, is critical. i just say a couple other things. Slovakia has received over 400,000 refugees from Ukraine, which is about 7% of the population. And as the First Lady saw just on Sunday when she was there, the Slovaks have opened their their arms, their hearts, and their homes to these refugees in a way that is really remarkable. Refugees can come to Slovakia for a year and they get full benefits from the government educational benefits. They're able to work. They're able to live in Slovakia Um, And also I I just want to highlight that Slovakia has been a an enormous outsized donor of security assistance And I'm really proud to have been part of this um, uh, Effort on the US side with the Secretary of Defense and others and ultimately our president Uh, to provide Slovakia the backfill so that Slovakia could provide S-300 anti-air system. So in a nutshell, Senator, it's really important to keep supporting the frontline states, and they need help in in various ways. But states uh, like Slovakia have really stepped up, in my opinion.
7: Um, Ambassador Richard, uh, good to see you again. Thank you for um, your tremendous service uh, in Lebanon. Thanks for welcoming me and a delegation there recently. Um, I wanted to... um, ask you a question about um, a January directive from Secretary Austin uh, to strengthen efforts to prevent civilian deaths and improve the way that DOD investigates uh, claims of civilian harm in U.S. combat operations. And this is specifically um, relevant to drone strikes. You've served in Yemen. You know the reports of pretty significant civilian casualties of our drone uh, operations. You've also probably seen Um, research suggesting that in areas where we have had the highest level of drone activity, often terrorist groups have the highest level of recruitment success. Um, Just want your commitment that you're going to work with the Department of Defense to uh, ensure that we um, minimize civilian harm and also in a very short amount of time get your um, takeaways as to the upside and downside of our drone activities as a mechanism to combat terrorism.
4: Uh, thank you for that question, and it's, as you know, an obviously very complex and fraught um, issue. I have worked with my DOD colleagues um, very closely in every assignment I've been in since in the last 15 years, and I've seen firsthand how hard this is because there's the need to deal with an imminent threat, often against our own troops or our own uh, American citizens, and the need to balance the the civilian casualties. And and I really welcome DOD's ability to look at this, accept that there's a problem, and really get after trying to figure out how to do it better. And so if I'm confirmed, I would really welcome working with them from the civilian side of the House on how to do that.
8: Thank you. Senator Portman is next. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I appreciate your having this hearing today on some really critical uh, nominations, particularly the nominee for Ukraine. Um, I have been pushing for us to get an ambassador nominated for uh, a long time now at the end of the last administration and into this administration and I think it's absolutely crucial that we get someone there. I'm glad the administration has nominated someone and I'm glad they chose a career ambassador who has experience in the area both uh, in Eastern Europe generally and specifically in Ukraine. This nomination of Ambassador Brink um, is really critical. We've got to move her quickly. I know the chairman and ranking member agree with that, and I appreciate your moving her so quickly uh, to a hearing. Um, Over the weekend, the president announced that uh, we have withdrawn another $150 million from the presidential drawdown authority, which means there is probably less than $100 million left, and here we are in Congress not yet acting on this supplemental request. So, Uh, Literally, munitions, uh, in addition, of course, to new weapons, are uh, potentially going to be stalled. So it is critical that we act and act quickly so we don't have a gap uh, in these munitions and deliveries right now, which is a crucial time, obviously, in in what's going on um, in the eastern and southern part of Ukraine. Uh, So I just wonder, um, Ambassador Brink, if you could talk a little about that. Why is it so important that we get this legislation passed quickly? What would it mean if we did not?
3: Well, thank you, Senator Portman. I just wanted to start by thanking you and also Senator Murphy for your support of the Global Engagement Center and uh, disinformation. I know that's been a big effort of yours, and it's really important uh, for Ukraine, but also for Slovakia and all these other countries that face this huge challenge. You answered my second question already.
8: (laughs) I I might get back to that a little bit. OK.
3: It is incredibly important uh, that the supplemental move fast. I, I don't know the latest, perhaps, but I understand it is moving. Uh, But what we are trying to do as an administration is move security items as fast as possible uh, to Ukraine. So while we have already provided some $3.8 billion worth of security assistance, the needs are large. Uh, We are working closely with allies and partners um, on those needs and with the Ukrainians, obviously, and also with, with you and your staffs. But it's really important that we are able to continue that, I think, Most people assess that these next few uh, weeks and maybe longer are critical to um, the ultimate result of this war of choice.
8: Yeah, but Let me ask a little about how you intend to uh, conduct yourself as ambassador. I've gotten the pleasure of working with a few ambassadors uh, when we had a nominated and confirmed ambassador and different styles a little bit, Jeffrey Pyatt and Marie Yovanovitch. Do you know Lieutenant General Terry Wolf, who's the Ukraine security coordinator?
3: I do not, but I, I will look forward to meeting him.
8: Would you intend to work closely with him? Of
3: course, yes.
8: I think that's important that you use his role not just as a diplomatic role, but really as a way to uh, deal with the pressing issue of their defense of their country. And uh, yeah, with things being on, on the line currently, I think uh, uh, General Wolf's gonna need your help and vice versa. Uh, do you know General Dayton?
3: No, I do I not guess. know General Dayton. But
8: he's, He was a coordinator previously for the training efforts and uh, also someone who I, I hope you will get to know and, and work with, yes. because I think that is an important part of your function, should you should you be confirmed, which I believe you will be, hopefully quickly. Um, what do you think they currently need militarily that they're not getting?
3: I think that the, the needs are evolving. So I would need to come back to you on what the precise needs are at this moment, but I know they're changing. What they needed to defend Kyiv is different than what they need now to try to defend the East and the South. Mm -hmm. So I think it's an evolving um, situation, and we need to work closely with Ukrainians on this. I can say, having served in the Balkans in many of the places where these protracted conflicts are around the region, that it is my great pleasure to work with our military. and I feel I have long worked well and closely with them and would see us as um, absolute partners in this effort.
8: excellent. there's also obviously a, a humanitarian crisis and an economic crisis uh, for the country right now, so all these issues are important, but I do think that um, you will be the voice of our country over there, and and critically, uh, critically you be engaged in all those issues. On the Global Engagement Center, we did talk about that last week. I appreciate you saying that you've seen the GEC work uh, in Slovakia. Uh, we're, we're outgunned here, just as the Ukrainians are outgunned by a much larger Russian force and more weapons with regard to disinformation. Russia, China, other countries, um, are engaged uh, deeply in this and spend billions of dollars on it. Um, can you tell us what the Global Engagement Center can do better to counter Russia's efforts to justify its invasion and trying to delegitimize the Ukrainian government?
3: Sir, thank you again. I think we can just do more, 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 is what I would want because you're absolutely right. I agree with you. We're outgunned, we're outresourced, we're outmaneuvered. We have to, we have to do as much as we can. It's a challenge. Disinformation is something that is, um, Pervasive in Europe and, and elsewhere and so we have to we have to do as much as we can We have to be creative and innovative and, and something sometimes bureaucracies aren't uh, But that's what we need to do to deal with this. It is a very big threat to us and our way of life
8: yeah. Thank you, Madam ambassador. Thank you.
0: Chairman. Thank you uh, Senator Van Hollen. I, I had told Senator Kuhn, I didn't see you sitting there that he could go next because he has a, an engagement uh, Would you yield to him and Thank you. Senator Coons.
9: Um, thank you, Mr. And I'll Chairman. Have
0: Senator Murphy preside uh, as I go vote. Thank you.
9: Um, and thank you to my colleague from uh, Maryland. Um, ambassadors, wonderful to see you. Thank you for your service to our nation. Um, looking forward to seeing you uh, confirmed uh, in the various places where you will serve that are all important areas of engagement. If I might, Ambassador Brink, Um, We are finalizing uh, what I hope will be a $40 billion emergency supplemental package for Ukraine that will include military, economic, and humanitarian assistance. I'm particularly focused on the humanitarian assistance because I'm the chair of the State and Foreign Operations Subcommittee. Um, Ukraine um, is, was, and should be, again, the breadbasket of Eastern Europe, rather than a country um, now known to have um, thousands in bread lines. Uh, What do you think will be the biggest challenges moving forward in terms of providing humanitarian assistance to the people of Ukraine? And I am particularly concerned about the ongoing blockade of the port of Odessa. Um, My sense of the future um, for Ukraine is that we will genuinely struggle to have a vibrant Ukraine without a vibrant economy, Mm -hmm. and a vibrant economy won't happen until uh, the 98% of Ukrainian grain exports that went out of the port of Odessa before the conflict are able to once again uh, transit freely and then be that great source of revenue that they've been um, in the past. So I'd be interested in your thoughts about how we get assistance into Ukraine during this war and how we get Ukrainian food um, and and oil and other critical products out of the port of Odessa.
3: Thank you, Senator. This is a, an an excellent question. There are millions of, in addition to the some 5 million refugees in surrounding states of Ukraine, there's, I think, 7.7 or something like that million IDPs within Ukraine and a huge humanitarian crisis happening right now. We have had some luck as I understand in um, and some um, success in in a lot of success I think in working with our international organizations that we fund and they're implementing partners that are also working in Ukraine to move humanitarian assistance into Ukraine I think the last tranche is something like five hundred and sixty five million dollars um, in humanitarian assistance it's not easy this is wartime environment so um, I, I would guess it's, it can't happen in the same as it would in any other environment. But these are also professionals and experts in, in such situations, and we're revi- relying very heavily on them to get humanitarian assistance where it's, it's intended to go. On the question of moving things out of the ports, this is a big challenge right now because Russia is blocking uh, the ports that uh, in the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov. So. We are trying to work with international partners and others to help find alternative routes for uh, grain and corn out of uh, Ukraine, uh, as well as to work with the other relief organizations to um, supplement uh, those countries that had depended upon these exports. So it's an enormous challenge. Uh, I think the benefit we have, as I mentioned before, is uh, President Biden's Uh, and this administration's success in galvanizing a coalition uh, of like-minded people who uh, together condemn this war of choice and are ready to work together. And that's exactly what I will, uh, if confirmed, be glad to jump in and help do.
9: Thank you. Um, I look forward to your swift confirmation as well as um, your colleagues, if I might. Ambassador Richard, briefly, Um, I'm very concerned about the Sahel, um, about the instability in Mali and in other countries in the region and the ongoing um, actions of the Wagner Group and the ways in which they've uh, really um, destabilized uh, several nations' recent coup d'etat in both Mali and Burkina. Um, Senator Graham and I worked on getting the Global Fragility Act signed into law, um, and it had overwhelming bipartisan support. Uh, Mozambique and coastal West Africa have been targeted as areas um, for this strategy to try and... Um, strengthen them as bulwarks against terrorism and instability. Um, If confirmed, would you uh, work with me and others in this uh, committee on the Global Fragility Act and ensure that it's actually used as a tool?
4: Yes, Senator, I absolutely would and I I really think the Global Fragility Act is a very creative and interesting new approach to some of the problems we've been struggling with, especially in Africa.
9: Thank you, Um, and if I might, Ambassador Lascaras, I've visited Chad once uh, and am watching some of the developments there with grave concern. How has this unconstitutional transfer of power following Idris Deby's death uh, affected our security cooperation? Um, And how do you think we might be able to more successfully influence um, movement towards genuinely free and fair elections in October of this year?
5: Thank thank you, Senator. And uh, you were in the chair 10 years ago when I appeared before this committee as the nominee for Guinea, so I, I deeply appreciate your presence and your enduring interest in Africa. Uh, I think we need to work with our African Union partners, our international partners, to continue to apply pressure on all the Chadian parties to advance this transitional process towards the free and fair elections. Uh, and the, I think one of the critical tasks will be to break the monopoly of the armed groups on seats at the table. The, the, the more seats we have at the table for unarmed political parties, for civil society, for women's groups, the better the outcome will be. I think it's time, after 62 years of having Chad ruled by the gun, to have it ruled by unarmed, democratically elected uh, political actors. Uh, our security assistance uh, right now is, is largely suspended because of uh, the aftermath of, of the death of President Debbie. Uh, our assistance, our security assistance focuses on a couple of things. One is the Chadian deployments uh, to the multinational stabilization mission uh, in Mali, where the two battalions have performed reasonably well. Uh, it also helps the multinational joint task force in the Lake Chad Basin uh, in the four-nation fight against Boko Haram and the Islamic State uh, of West Africa. Uh, so I think our challenge is to get the political transition back on track to improve governance. I think the Global Fragility Act, as well as the Trans-Sahelian uh, Partnership Act, uh, focus on governance, and the lack thereof is the driver of conflict uh, in the region. Uh, so once we, if and when we can take care of the governance challenges, I think the security assistance should follow.
9: Thank you. Thank you all very much. And um I'd like to thank my colleague again from Maryland for his graciousness.
10: Uh, thank you. Uh thank you to the Senator from Delaware. I'm not sure I would have um had you jumped the line if I knew you were going to take my last question. But uh anyway, with all seriousness, uh Ambassador Lascardas, I, I thank you for that answer uh with respect to the situation uh in in Chad. Congratulations uh to all of you on your, your nominations and um With respect to uh, the situation in Ukraine, um, Ambassador Brink, first of all, thank you for your service in Slovakia, and uh, let me just say I look forward to working uh, with you when confirmed, and I expect that will happen uh, on all the issues that unite us uh, in our fight to defeat Putin and uh, make sure that we stand with the people of of Ukraine. Um, Ambassador Richard, I thought I'd continue the conversation with respect to ISIS, uh, and I wanted to start with the situation in northeast Syria, uh, because, you know, while we've, of course, made great progress over the years uh, in the fight against ISIS, uh, we continue to see active cells. And, you know, my question is, what do we need to be doing right now in working with our Syrian Kurdish allies in particular uh, to prevent the resurgence of ISIS in the region?
4: Well, I think, and, and I'm going to caveat this, that I've been out of the active um, duty part of the State Department for two years now, but but as I look at it, certainly reading open source, it's clear that they are holding that area pretty well. They're preventing ISIS from starting a new caliphate and then going out from there, but again, it's not a stable situation, and, and so I... I I honestly don't know what the answer is, and I look forward to consulting, if I'm confirmed, with our Middle East colleagues, to say what manner of Syria issues, counterterrorism issues, military issues, Iraq and that whole area can we better work on to to break out of the kind of stasis that we're in now.
10: Well, I appreciate that. I know in your opening statement you mentioned the issue of these camps, uh, some camps with ISIS fighters, some camps with um, family members. And you know this is a problem we've all identified, but as you probably know, nobody's come up with a good solution. Uh, a number of us uh, were just meeting with uh, King Abdullah uh, from Jordan, and again, thanking uh, Jordan for taking in many Syrian refugees. Um, he raised this issue, as many of us did. But, uh, and I don't expect you to you know, come in right now with a clear answer, but this is something that we've been talking about for a long time. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts to share now as to the best way to tackle it. Uh, But I I would be interested if you have some preliminary ideas.
4: I I join you in, in saying this is a huge problem, and I have a little bit of experience from Lebanon where we had Palestinian refugee camps that had been there for 30 years. So the longer it goes unresolved, the harder it is to resolve. Um, and so I would I would really, I think one thing I might bring if I were to be confirmed is maybe a little fresh energy to the problem because the Counterterrorism Bureau at State, as, as other offices, has been without a permanent uh, leadership for a while now. And that might be the first thing I would be able to bring to the party.
10: Well, I think, uh, and I, I'm hoping and I understand there's some consideration of uh, providing some additional U.S. resources uh, within our Umbrella of Syrian assistance, assistance to the Syrian people in the northeastern uh, part of Syria. I hope that's uh, the case, and look forward to working with you on that. Uh, turning to Afghanistan, uh, as as you indicated, uh, you also have an ISIS presence. We now have the situation where uh, you know the, the Taliban is control in control, but they're uh, they're they're fighting ISIS. What is your assessment of where ISIS uh, stands and its strength in Afghanistan today?
4: So again, I don't have visibility on much of the the hard intelligence and, and information, but it's very distressing to see them, this Khorasan group, having been able to establish a presence and then execute attacks, recently both in Afghanistan and in Pakistan. So clearly the Taliban assurances that they were going to take care of this problem of safe havens in Afghanistan have not been met, so that's one part of it, and I know our special representative is working on that issue. But uh, clearly, I think we have an opportunity to pay a little more attention to that now before it too metastasizes any further and gets out of hand.
10: And what is your assessment, just to pick up a little on Senator Coons' questions in the Sahel, what is your assessment right now of ISIS's um, growth in in, in in Africa?
4: I think, and I again, I defer to my Africa colleagues, and I'm looking forward to learning a little more about that region. What I see is... ISIS affiliates, people aspire, inspired by ISIS, associating themselves with ISIS. Uh, rather than a hard command and control, you go here and you go there. And that's a lot harder to fight, and it's a lot harder to, to see sometimes. And poor governance and economic despair in the region is a big cause of this. So I, I, I would look forward, if I'm confirmed, to working with Africa Bureau to understand the underlying dynamics. So again, we might get ahead of this.
10: I appreciate it. As you well know, the, the conversation um, in the foreign policy community has uh, swung from counterterrorism to so-called great power competition, and I understand that, appreciate it, and uh, agree that we didn't focus enough on that. But I, I don't want to swing back entirely in the other direction uh, and see ISIS and other uh, terrorist organizations, uh, you know, use use this opportunity while everybody's focused on. Uh, other parts of the world to uh, to regain their strength. So look forward to uh, working with you and, and all of you uh, when confirmed. Thank you. And I guess I'm, oh, Mr. Senator Murphy. I,
7: I, I'm gonna uh, fill the, the gap before Senator Menendez gets back and maybe ask uh, one additional question um, awaiting Senator Menendez's return from the floor. Um, and, and that's to you, Ambassador Richard. Again, drawing back on your experience in Lebanon Um, no two terrorist organizations are the same, right? Al-Qaeda is a very different animal than Hezbollah. Um, Al-Qaeda generally operates in the shadows, whereas in Lebanon, Hezbollah operates out in the open. They are a political force. They run human services operations. And um, it it means that um, whether we like it or not, when it comes to a Um, a more socially embedded group like Hezbollah, you have to meet them where they are, right? You have to have an answer for the services that they are providing. I think since you've left, there has been a a debate about energy security in Lebanon. Hezbollah is showing up with uh, shipments of oil from Iran, Um, And we are busy at work trying to find an alternative. But um, this is sort of the corollary to the question about the drone strikes, right? There's an element of combating terrorist organizations that involves killing terrorists. There is also an element of fighting terrorist organizations that acknowledges um, that they often provide human services um, that you have to create, that you have to be able to supply as a government, as an ally of a government, um, in order to make people less reliant on those Uh, terrorist organizations, so just asking you to draw upon your experience dealing with uh, Hezbollah in um, in Lebanon.
4: Thank you for the question. Thank you for your interest, by the way, in Lebanon and all your support for the time I was there until now. Um, I think the hardest, what you just put your finger on is the hardest thing, and what happens with terrorist groups in my experience is they fill vacuums, and if the quickest and easiest vacuum to fill is security People turn up and they have weapons and they calm the people down and say, don't worry, we'll take care of security. When these groups move into that next level of services and jobs and benefits, it's much, much harder to combat them. And what needs to happen in Lebanon is is a government, a functioning government that can execute those same services in a non-corrupt and fair way is the solution to Hezbollah having filled that gap already.
7: I was just, I, I was asking an extra question just to fill the gap before you got back, but I think Senator Haggerty is
0: oh, okay. next. Very good. Well, I didn't know where the the, <laughs> the
11: is it all right to go was now?
0: going at this point, but I'm glad that you did that. Senator Haggerty. All
11: right. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I'd like to turn my remarks to Ambassador Brink. Ambassador, I am um, pleased to see you before the committee today. I'm looking forward to meeting with you tomorrow. Um, and I'm pleased that you've finally been nominated. Uh, You're going into a very critical zone. You're going into a position I wish you had been nominated for some time ago, well before uh, Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Uh, I want to let you know that uh, I am very supportive of seeing our diplomatic presence back in Ukraine. My colleague Senator Cardin and I both signed a letter to Secretary Blinken underscoring our support for that uh, just in the past several days. Um, And I'm pleased to see things moving as they are at this point. But I'd just like to take this opportunity to say the following. Having a Senate-confirmed chief admission in place is absolutely critical to our ability to execute uh, our, our foreign policy. Uh, this is a matter of priorities. Uh, I myself have gone through the same process that you're going through. I was actually put through 30 hours of cloture to get through this process. Yet I was able to get confirmed and into my position within a couple of months of getting through the OGE process. Uh, I was at my post the summer of 2017. It's taking far too long to get our diplomats at post. And I just want to underscore the priority that I see here and underscore for the department and for this administration that I hope that they will begin to accelerate the process very soon of getting our nominees in front of us. So thank you very much again. I look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: I understand that Senator Booker is with us virtually. Senator Booker.
12: Senator Menendez, thank you very much. Uh, I'm just wanna ask two quick questions if I may. Uh, The first is uh, to, Ms. Brink, I'm really grateful that you're uh, before us. And I know that the Port of Odessa was already brought up and some of the issues going on there. I'm very, very uh, concerned about global food insecurity and the crisis that we see globally with one of the points in American, in the US, and excuse me, world history, where we have the most uh, food insecure people. And this has been aggravated by COVID-19 and been aggravated uh, by other global shocks to our supply chain and i know that from uh yemen to uh the afghanistan to the horn of africa we have a lot of challenges now i'm hopeful with the current negotiations it looks like we might be able to get uh, about five billion dollars from the united states into the um into the world food program or other efforts to meet some of this crisis but i just want to ask you uh, from your own opinion given what's going on in ukraine um, and the shocks to their uh, uh, ability to provide food, as they do, for many uh, places around the world, especially those that are facing food insecurity. Um, I just think that it's really important more than ever for the United States to be stepping up uh, to this crisis. And I'm wondering if your concern that this global food crisis, uh, similar to food crises in the past, uh, could, uh, if we don't address it, could lead to social unrest, uh, lots of conflict, uh, potentially stressing uh, governments creating more mass migration uh, only to make the overall security crisis in Europe even greater.
3: Senator, first of all, thank you so much for your question. It's an excellent question. Uh, I have to say I'm married to a, a foreign service officer with with USAID. So I am um, uh, by by interest, but by marriage and, and, and long discussion, um, very interested in all of the humanitarian aspects of this particular conflict. I think what you say is exactly right. I think it shows why this is a, a global conflict, why this is one that is in the interest of the United States to do everything we can to help Ukraine defend itself um, and then to rebuild. And I can tell you with regard to the food insecurity issue, it is one of the the big issues that I will be looking at and doing everything I can to assist with. I know we have a new um, envoy in the State Department uh, who is also seized with this, and we will be working and are working together with the UN, with USAID, with other organizations uh, to do everything we can to alleviate some of the second order consequences of Russia's war of choice. Uh,
12: Thank you uh, very much. And then my last question, uh, the uh, uh It's going back to Africa and some of the challenges there. Uh, one of which has just been the remarkable level uh, of coups that we're seeing in Africa uh, since 2020 in Mali. There have been six attempted military coups, as I'm sure you're aware of. Uh, five of which have been successful. With the latest in, um, uh, we've seen a coup in Burkina Faso uh, this past January, um, and it's it's frustrating. I was in Burkina Faso. Uh, myself uh, with uh, uh, a few years back um, but seeing these military coups spreading around the region is really challenging and so uh, the you know that we know that the the folks are calling this an epidemic of coups uh, but on top of this we have a lot of uh, military excuse me democratic backsliding in general in Africa uh, beyond the even coups itself Uh, we've seen this backsliding in Uganda and in Ethiopia And so I appreciate the important security role that Chad plays in the region and the moves by the TMC to open uh, the political space. But at the same time, it's important to ensure the full transition to civilian-led democratic uh, system. Uh, This is not just essential in terms of sending a message uh, to any other regimes uh, about our continued support for democracy and our concerns about democratic backsliding, but it's also critical, I think, uh, for sustainable long-term stability in that region. What's the State Department doing uh, or and could be doing more so to encourage and assist Chad uh, with such a transition?
5: Thank you, Senator. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I would also point out that military rule has generally been catastrophic uh, for Africa. So when, when people support coups, the body of evidence uh, suggests that these are governance catastrophes that impoverish countries Further and, and also bring human rights and humanitarian catastrophes on them. So, for that reason alone, we should be pushing back uh, as, as hard as possible. Uh, in the case of Chad, um, there is a democratic backsliding because, frankly, there really has not been any democratic front sliding uh, since Chad's independence. Chad has been ruled by the gun uh, since independence, it's been ruled by people who took power generally by force. So, I think it's time to break that paradigm. I think it's time to put seats around the table uh, for the unarmed political actors and for, to prioritize them. I don't think we can do this from the outside. I don't think we can impose, uh, impose this on Chad, but we can listen to the overwhelming uh, majority of Chadians of goodwill, particularly the young people who, who don't have the memories uh, of, their, of the older generations, uh, who are calling for this. So I think we need to empower, uh, to the best extent possible, the unarmed political class, including civil society, uh, in modern Chad, which I think is a bright spot uh, in, the, in the political prospects of this country.
13: Thank you.
12: Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
13: Thank you. Senator Markey. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, thank you, uh, um, Ms. Brink, for your long career. And uh, I think you're much needed and are going to do a great job uh, in Ukraine. Could I touch took a little bit, if I could, about the ban on oil imports? for the EU uh, from uh, Russia and the role that Hungary is playing. You're, you're an expert on Slovakia, other countries. Could you talk a little bit in general about the consensus that exists right now uh, except for Hungary and what, from your perspective, the incentives could be to have Hungary join in to this? They've already been offered a two-year extension in terms of their ability to comply with the oil ban. Do you have any insights in terms of what, what could be done in order to ensure that Hungary joins so that this new uh, regime goes into place as quickly as possible.
3: Thank you very much, Senator, and thank you for uh, our conversation earlier. Um, As as I'm not the uh, accredited diplomat to Hungary, I don't have direct knowledge. What I understand with regard to the EU and and all of the EU member states is that there is a strong willingness or interest to move this issue very quickly. And what I've seen from my position in Slovakia, and I believe probably also applies to Hungary, is that if there are ways to provide substitution with regard to any of the energy sources for European countries, ways where the US can be helpful, that is extremely uh, an extremely uh, helpful situation for them to be in. So obviously they have a challenge of their publics and rising prices on the energy side. And so any ways where we can help such as, as we've been, we are doing, which is increasing our LNG and with regard to oil, I would assume it's a similar situation. And we're also helping on nuclear uh, fuel as well in Ukraine and also in other places.
13: Yeah. And I appreciate that. But just in general, I appreciate your expertise in this region in Uh, General, Um, prior to Russia's assault on Ukraine, uh, at the top of the list of things that were holding Ukraine back was its endemic corruption from top to bottom. Uh, Ukraine was 122nd out of 180 countries on Transparency International's rankings in 2021. Russia was 136th. And so what do you think the United States can do in this situation where we're going to be the principal um, uh, assistance that is provided to Ukraine for the duration of this conflict in terms of encouraging transparency, encouraging a change in the culture in their country?
3: Yeah, thank you, Senator, for this question. It is, it is crucial for Ukraine to actually prevail in this uh, situation. It's not only necessary for Ukraine to prevail uh, in defending itself against the Russian attack, but also to prevail in creating the kind of Ukraine that Ukrainians have been fighting for for years, uh, after the Orange Revolution, after the Revolution of Dignity. And that is for a Ukraine that is free of corruption, that follows the rule of law, that allows for uh, democratic rights. That is one that is a uh, something that will be the biggest challenge, I think, next step challenge uh, for the Ukrainian government. And I think what... But I really am grateful for the congressional support and the appropriations to help us support Ukraine. I think we be, we must be mindful of that being such a challenge, and we must um, offer assistance in ways that's going to help the Ukrainians meet that challenge.
13: Yeah, my fear is that Ukraine's going to win the war and lose the peace. Exactly. Their, their principal obstacle to accession to the EU has been their corruption, yeah. top to bottom, in their government, in their society. So. We want them to be admitted to the EU. We want them to be able to meet the transparency standards, which uh, the rest of the EU, um, in fact, does comply with. So um, I just think it's imperative for us to figure out how to square that circle, that there's two discussions going on at the same time. Because as soon as this war is concluded, uh, we want them to be able to join the EU. But we won't if they then revert uh, to the very same pattern of behavior which they've had throughout modern times, uh, and including, by the way, their total addiction to natural gas from Russia, which had them be one of the bottom five in terms of energy efficiency. Uh, they just got addicted to this old way, this, I'll ultimately say, this corrupt way uh, of operating. So again, we're glad to have you there, and uh, and I think that message, that is, we're going to assist them during the war, but they have to be prepared for the peace as well. And their culture, their political system has to change. You know, and uh, so we're just
14: so glad to have you
3: there. Thank you. Thank you.
14: Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to our witnesses. Congratulations for your nominations. Good to be with you today. Uh, Ambassador Brink, I know you've been asked a number of questions about. Uh, Should you be confirmed assuming the role a very important role in a nation at war? I want to ask you kind of drill down into that and ask you about a pretty specific one and that is um, Morale issues. So you've you've been an ambassador. You know how important morale of both our own um, FSOs, but also local staff uh, is to the, the strong functioning of an embassy. So should you be confirmed? How will you address sort of morale and stress issues for the U.S. and local staff in in Lviv and Kiev.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Well, I think it's very important uh, that we reestablish our embassy mission, and that will be a very important first step, not only because it sends the right signal to Ukrainians and to our own staff, um, because it's necessary for us to be there on the ground. And I think that will help. Um, I can tell you that... uh, Paying attention and understanding that our mission is made up of Americans and local staff, and local staff being the backbone of every single embassy around the world. We cannot function without them, is really important for any chief of mission. And I think also rallying people around our goal, and our goal is going to be to and is to help Uh, Ukraine defend itself and to use every bit of experience and effort and support we can garner to do that on the ground in Ukraine. And then, of course, we need to take care of our staff and do everything we can to do so. Um, I think it's an unprecedented situation that our embassy found itself. I have been a part of an embassy that had to close very early in my career, and it is heartbreaking and also to be a part of a, a wartime situation where people um, are, stay behind or um, are unable to accompany is also an unimaginably hard thing for those of us who do this work uh, to go through. So I don't underestimate the, the challenge that our mission has faced. Um, I, I salute our leadership there, Christina Kveen, and also all of the embassy staff. And I can just say I will look forward very much to joining this team and helping every way I can and leading our effort there in the best way possible so that we can affirm and use all of the great resource we have um, to achieve our goals.
14: Thank you. Ambassador Richard, Um, the Department of State's Office of the Inspector General documented several key findings in its 2020 inspection of the CT Bureau, including... Uh, Nearly 20 of its 92 authorized civil service positions, about 22%, were vacant at the time of the inspection. The report also indicated the CT Bureau allowed nearly $52 million in appropriated funds to expire um, and then cancel from FY 2016 to 2019, an average of about $13 million a year, meaning that these funds went unused and they were returned to the Treasury Department due to Bureau, quote, weakness in funds control. OIG also found that the CT Bureau regularly submitted congressionally mandated country reports on terrorism well beyond the required deadline of April 30 for the previous eight years. Uh, The most recent report, 2020, was submitted on December 2021. Um, What would you do should you be confirmed to fill positions? control use of funds and, and invest them wisely and get the Bureau in a place where they're submitting the uh, required terrorism reports on a timely basis.
4: Well, thank you for that question because it's um, oftentimes we don't pay enough attention to those very issues which, as my colleague just said, sometimes are the backbone of your operation. Um, if I were be confirmed, look, I spent three years in the Middle East Bureau um, creating and then directing the Office of, of uh, Assistance to the, to the Middle East. And I really learned some valuable skills there in program management, in money management, in personnel management, especially in a bureau with a large uh, civil service population. And so I think I can bring some, some lessons learned from that experience to the CT Bureau and hopefully get them um, functioning at the high rate that I know that they can do. Um, I keep in mind that they have been without leadership for quite some time now, um, and so many people are acting and filling two and three jobs at the same time, and I really hope to have the opportunity to get after that problem too, because it's a great staff. Thank
14: you, Ambassador Ambassador Richards. You're you're right to draw a line between vacancies and actings and then internal disorganization. I mean, you just can't operate at the efficiency and the, the, uh, not just efficiency, but the quality that you need to if uh, there's too many vacancies or people are in positions and they're not sure that they're gonna uh, be able to continue in those positions. So thank you for making the connection between some of the IG's assessments and the importance of getting people confirmed and in the positions. Mr. Chair, I yield back. Thank you. Senator Sheehan.
6: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And thank you and congratulations to each of our nominees this afternoon. Um, I want to begin with you, Ambassador Brink, um, because as everyone has said, Ukraine is, of course, uppermost in our minds. And um, very much appreciate your um, willingness to be considered for this critical post at this time. I, I also want to echo your opening Thanks to Chargé d'Affaires, Christina Kavine, for her continued service there. I know it's been a difficult time for everyone who's been part of our embassy. Um, As we look at the hundreds of thousands of refugees from Ukraine, obviously the majority of them have been women and children. And I'm particularly concerned about how we support the... Women and address potential trafficking issues um, and can you speak to that and to how we can how we can ensure that the women and girls and the children who have fled the war in Ukraine don't become victims again because of
3: sex trafficking? Thanks a lot, uh, Senator Shaheen at the beginning of the war, I had the chance to Go to the border between ukraine and slovakia and it struck me the thing that struck me the very most was that everyone coming across the border was a woman or a child or even children on their own uh, i can say that throughout my career the issue of trafficking in persons has been one of my personal priorities and i'm very happy it's your priority and also one of the congresses and every time i've served in a country i have uh, focused in on um, helping to helping each country uh, become uh, better able to stop trafficking and, and recognize trafficking and so I have worked very closely with our office of uh, anti-trafficking coordinator uh, we call JTIP and I will look forward to working with them in particular because Ukraine has long uh, been a source country so I know that the problem there it's a it's a big country and I know the problem there is is also, uh, potentially quite large. So it would be an area that I have a personal interest in and would want to work very closely with our authorities. But then, of course, with the Ukrainians, because the challenge with trafficking, it's a whole-of-government effort. No one agency is able to do it on its own. And uh, I completely agree it's an incredibly important issue, and especially right now for people who are uh, refugees already and, and other compounded um things that they have to face. Um, Well,
6: thank you for that. I I had the opportunity to meet with some of the women parliamentarians from Ukraine who were here uh, a month or so ago. And one of the things we talked about was women, peace, and security legislation that we have passed here in the United States. And they were very interested in that from Ukraine's perspective and in possibly doing something to partner um, around that legislation. So I, I would just ask you to to put that on your list as we're thinking about what we might do together to address um, what's happening in the country. Um, Ambassador Richard, it's nice to see you again in a different capacity and I should um, thank you publicly for your help with us when we had a New Hampshire resident who was detained illegally in Lebanon and uh, very much appreciated your efforts. and. Um, while sadly he is no longer with us, it was very important to get him out of the country and get him home. So thank you for that. I, I wanted to ask you about the ISIS detainee coordinator, because that's a role that was signed into law as part of the Robert Levinson Hostage Recovery and Hostage Taking Accountability Act. Um, the creation of this um, role was originally recommended by the Syria study group in response to what's happening in Syria. And I'm sad to say that the situation in Syria has not gotten better with respect to ISIS detainees. It's gotten worse, and um, as I understand, in your new role, you would um, have that coordinator as part of your responsibility. Can you talk a little bit about what you think the priority is there? and? What we can do to address what is becoming has the potential to be a, a huge nightmare in the region um, as we look at what's happening in the detainee camps.
4: Well, thank you very much for for the kind words about Lebanon and it's a pleasure to see you too and may I also say here on the record that that I I've so valued the collaboration between yourself and us and the country team for many, many months. And I've used that so many times with younger officers to say, this is how it can work and how beautiful it is when we work together. So thank you for that. You. Um, on, on the foreign there, so the foreign fighters issue, the foreign terrorist fighters issue is in my office. And I've, I've mentioned earlier in this hearing that I, I, it is really one of the top one or two issues uh, on, on the plate because it's an inherently unstable situation that does get worse by the day. And it is a, a problem with fighters, and it's also a problem with the families, who are tens of thousands of them, many, many children as well, who are detained in situations that just cries out for recruitment by radicals. It's, it's very unsustainable. So I think we have to bring new energy to that problem. Um, if I understood you correctly, you're also talking about Syria and the issue of hostages, am I right? Or you were talking um, about the foreign fighters?
6: No, I was really talking about foreign fighters, yeah. the-
4: this is a key issue, and I, I think we, um, all of us, including our partners in the national community, have have gotten a little bit complacent, because if it's not on fire, we're not paying attention to it. But we can't be complacent anymore. And so if I'm confirmed, this would definitely be one of my top uh, agenda items.
6: Well, thank you. I look forward to working with you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Senator Cardin is with us oh, Thank you,
15: Mr. Chairman. Let me thank all, all three of our nominees for their Continued service to our country. I appreciate it very much. Uh, uh, Ambassador Brink, we had a chance to talk, and I just really want to underscore a couple points. First, thank you for taking on um, this assignment. Obviously, it is so critically important at this moment for our presence in uh, Ukraine. And as has been mentioned, we look forward uh, to you personally being in Kyiv and the re- reestablishment of our mission uh, and embassy in, in Kyiv. I want to go over two things that we talked about, but sort of underscore the point. First, we need to have the capacity in country to help in regards to the information necessary to pursue war crimes, or crimes against humanity or genocide against those responsible uh, in uh, Mr. Putin and Russia for what's happened in Ukraine. Your work in the Balkans give me great confidence that you understand the magnitude of the task in order to get evidence that can be used for accountability. And you recognize also that the world is looking at what happens in regards to accountability uh, for, the, for the atrocities in Ukraine. Can you just talk a moment about how you see uh, the US role in assisting uh, those uh, that will be responsible for uh, preserving the evidence and moving forward with accountability.
3: Thank you, Senator. Uh, justice and accountability for war crimes and atrocities is uh, incredibly important uh, to Ukraine and to us and to me personally. And as you mentioned, I had the chance uh, when I served very early on in, in the Balkans to witness atrocities firsthand and uh, also a- was able to contribute to, ultimately, uh, the uh, justice to Radovan Karadzic and Ratko Mladic. It took 17 years and 26 years, but uh, they are facing justice, and I think that's really important. So the world has to know, and uh, those who commit these atrocities has to know, that we won't stop. We will be relentless in our pursuit. We are using every tool at our disposal uh, to support the documentation of atrocities and to, able to enable their use in prosecutions, so we're doing this in a, many different ways, but including through support of the Prosecutor General's Office, uh, through, through support of the uh, UN Council for Human Rights, and also through the OSCE Moscow Mechanism. Uh, We are also supporting the ICC in its efforts. So we are going to use every tool at our disposal. I can tell you it will be a personal priority of mine as well.
15: And I will be underscoring that uh, tomorrow. There is a meeting of the OSCE Parliamentary Assembly uh, dealing with... uh,
0: Senator Cardin, I don't know if you're still with us. We had a freeze for a moment. The modern marvels of technology have its limitations. so. All right, We'll try to contact his office and see if uh, he still has uh, some time, and he may have one or two final questions. So in the interim, let me just uh, go over a couple of final things. Uh,
15: Ambassador Richard uh, Are you back with us, Ben? I'm sorry. Okay, I was just urging the ambassador to have capacity to deal with the democratic institutions within Ukraine as they rebuild, particularly in fighting corruption that has been so prevalent in their country over such a period of time, uh, just so we have the capacity to deal with that as we move forward.
3: Uh, Yes, Senator, I completely agree. Ensuring that Ukraine is able to seize this opportunity to uh, rebuild and reform and take an opportunity that has uh, been passed by previously is incredibly important. If we are going to devote these resources and energy and U.S. taxpayer money, and um, thank you to the Congress for providing it, we need to make sure that it's done in a way um, that helps to realize the aspirations of the Ukrainian people and also the values we share of a... Uh, independent, democratic, prosperous, sovereign Ukraine.
15: And let me just point out to Mr. Laskaris, we know that Chad has significant challenges in regards to uh, uh, institutions that protect the rights of its citizens, yet it has mineral wealth. So I will be um, asking you, for the record, uh, your commitment as to how you're going to deal with those types of challenges in Chad. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Uh, thank you, Senator Cardin. Uh, let me close up here. Uh, Ambassador Richard, uh, in the la- at the end of the last year, we passed uh, legislation that I and Senator Rich sponsored the Trans Sahara Counterterrorism Partnership Program Act, which calls for the administration to develop a counterterrorism strategy for the region. Uh, can we get your commitment to uh, submit this strategy uh, in a timely fashion, if you are confirmed, upon your confirmation?
4: Yes, absolutely. Thank
0: you. Uh, I have a series of letters in support of Ambassador Richard from colleagues, uh, and I asked him to ask the consent to include them in the record without objection, so ordered. And then finally, Ambassador Lascaras, uh over the last 10 years, U.S. security assistance to Chad significantly outpaced U.S. support for democracy and good governance and contributed, in my view, to the militarization of the former uh, Debbie regime. Even after the 2021 coup, the administration continued to pursue a security assistance relationship with Chad. As I noted in a March 18th letter to Assistant Secretary of State for Africa, uh, Molly Fee, I have serious concerns about this approach. I believe there needs to be a comprehensive plan that includes robust support for good governance and strengthening institutions. Military juntas responsible for seizing power through unconstitutional means, should not, in my view, benefit from U.S. security assistance. This committee has jurisdiction over security assistance. So I want to ask you, uh, do you believe that we should be advocating for a pause on security assistance until a new civilian-led elected government is in place?
5: Senator, I think that... um, uh, when it comes to the deployments of uh, Chadian troops into Mali, into the peacekeeping operation there, uh, which we fund through our peacekeeping support activities, uh, I think that is a high enough priority that, that we should continue that, um, obviously uh, with, with great oversight to their conduct in the field. I do think, however, that the security assistance that could be used to, to uh, repress internal uh, political dissent, I think it's prudent to pause that and pending the outcome of, of the... Um, the dialogue, and hopefully the transition to a democratically elected government.
0: Now, I, let me ask, don't we need to, uh, move going forward, ensure that our relationship with Chad better balances defense, diplomacy, and development? Uh, I think it's heavy on the security side and incredibly light on the other. Uh, are we willing to look away uh, from the core? I mean, you know, this, these are about... Uh, continental messages and global messages as well, right? At what point are we willing to pursue such a road without thinking about the consequences of a government that is there by force and by coup, not by the electorate, of the, the will of the electorate?
5: Well, Senator, thank you for the question. Uh, by far, our largest line-item assistance to Chad is humanitarian assistance, mainly uh, food assistance. Uh, that's running about $90 million a year. Uh, our second largest form of assistance in the last year has been COVID, about $17 million a year, including half a million uh, vaccine doses. So our, our military assistance is actually a distant third in terms of the dollar value. But I agree with you that the narrative is out there that we've securitized the relationship. And if confirmed, one of the things I have to do is uh, make sure that, that, the, that the actual data of our, secure, of our assistance uh, is out there. At the same time, I do, with all respect, do think that our, our democracy and governance activities have been underfunded uh, in Chad. Uh, as, particularly as this committee has made it clear that it values very much uh, the movement towards uh, democratic uh, elections and the, the building of uh, an unarmed political system. So, I, you know, if, if I think there is uh, progress in the National Dialogue, uh, I expect my colleagues and I will come back and, and ask for an increase in our democracy and governance assistance programs in China. Yeah,
0: security assistance may be third in those categories, but one of the reasons we have as much humanitarian assistance is because of the instability that exists in the country and its uh, governance in the country. So uh, if the junta, led by Debbie, fails to adhere to core transitional benchmarks articulated last year by the African Union, it'll be my hope that uh, you, as a sitting ambassador speaking to the department, will be looking at visa vans and global Magnitsky sanctions be, uh, where applicable, because at some point uh, we just can't live on the aspiration that this is going to get better, and we're going to continue to fuel these uh, entities.
5: Yes, sir, I agree with you.
0: All right, this uh, record will remain open to the close of business tomorrow. Uh, For members' questions, I would urge the nominees to answer the questions as expeditiously as possible so we can consider your nomination at the next uh, business meeting. With the thanks of the committee for your willing to serve, this hearing is adjourned.